Welcome to the Heartbeat for Hire podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay Dowd. In my 25 years of sales experience, I've managed some of the most prestigious accounts in the world, negotiated multi-million dollar deals without sacrificing relationships, and built successful sales organizations where folks were knocking down the door to be a part of the rich, fun culture we created. My goal is to help train leaders and sales organizations how to manage and deliver results with empathy, compassion, and kindness. Each week, I'll share strategies you can take with you to invest in your people in a way that redefines the fabric of your sales organization and your company as a whole. I have an arsenal of tips and tricks up my sleeve and have a decorated sales career to leverage. Let's get started. Welcome to this episode of Heartbeat for Hire. And I always say a podcast is only as good as its guests. And today we've got a great one. So I'm so excited to introduce you to my very dear friend of 20 plus years, Kat Salazzo. And let me tell you a little bit about her. So she is the chief marketing officer at Syntax. She's a seasoned executive with more than 18 years of experience in the IT industry at companies like IBM and TD Cinex. Prior to joining Syntax, she's served as the SVP of marketing at TD Cinex, where she built the first integrated marketing organization with an industry-leading organizational design, digital-first approach, and led the marketing organization through a transformative merger. Serious stuff, guys. She believed that growth, that a growth mindset and servant leadership style motivates her teams and accelerates lasting outcomes. She has been recognized by CRN as among as among the most powerful women of the channel in 2021. She is on the 100 people you don't know but should in 2020 and women of the channel in 2020 and 2021. I was in one of those classes with you. <laughs> Welcome to the podcast. So happy you're here. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. This is so exciting. It's, it's uh, normal. We're going to have some need. fun. Yes. We're going to have some fun. So Kat, tell everyone a little bit about your background, how, how you arrived at being a CMO and maybe just some of the, the tidbits you've learned along the way. Sure, sure. Happy to. I'll give everyone sort of a, a little insight into my, my journey here. Uh, I started as an intern actually at IBM in the communications function. That's sort of my bread and butter. I've always uh, been passionate about communications. I think it's the foundation of every good CMO. Um, from there, I moved into a number of different roles. Uh, I was in sales for a little bit. I moved into product marketing, field marketing. Um, I very early in my career had an opportunity to take my first leadership position. Uh, I think I was about 26. And I look back on that now and think, oh my goodness, what were they thinking? But <laughs> Um, it was a very pivotal uh, moment for me where I, I made a decision to go from being an individual contributor to understanding what uh, the requirements of being a leader were very, very young in, uh, in my tenure. Uh, I spent three years in Japan uh, leading the marketing uh, team over there uh, with IBM and came back. I served as chief of staff uh, when we were creating our first digital business unit. Um, I spent time leading uh, worldwide developer missions uh, and startups. I, um, and then I spent the last three years of my career at IBM in the channel, uh, really, really falling in love with our, our partner ecosystem and everything that it takes to make that successful and really get that amplification and acceleration in market um, by understanding how to leverage that, that industry and that ecosystem. From there, I went to a distributor, Tech Data, uh, who uh, had 
also recently announced a big merger with another distributor in the industry, uh, Cynix. And uh, I saw them through uh, through the merger. And uh, and I recently, very recently, only three weeks ago, arrived at my current CMO position over at Syntax. And Syntax will sort of round out my trifecta in the channel. I've been on the vendor side now. I've moved to the distributor space. And, um, and now I'm on the provider side. So <clears throat> really excited about seeing the industry through all three of those lenses. But as you know, uh, anytime you take a new role, uh, it is uh, a huge focus of mine to make sure that I'm focused on the leadership uh, posture and culture within my organization. So when you asked me to come on, I thought, heck yes, it is, uh, it's totally appropriate based on uh, sort of the season of life that I'm in. So excited. Well, you, you have such a well-rounded background and I've had a front row seat to all of it. So it's been a total joy to watch you kind of climb the ranks and, and land in this amazing spot. So now that you're in this new company and it's been a few weeks, can you share some of your observations? Sure. You know, it's uh, anytime I take a new role, one thing about my my history that I think uh, you know very intimately, as do I, is uh, I've moved quite quickly, um, you know, getting to uh, a CMO position before uh, 40 has been, uh, you know, a lot of learning and uh, a lot of uh, successes and failures. And as you go through all of those successes and failures, you, you tend to develop this methodology for how you approach uh, a new challenge. And that is exactly where I am right now, which is coming in, learning the business, focusing on my team, really understanding um, you know, what is behind that first conversation is, uh, is always really challenging, right? And it, and it does take time to really build that trust and uh, develop a culture and an environment where people feel like they can share with you what's actually happening while learning the business, while developing key relationships, um, while figuring out where to prioritize and focus your time and your energy. So uh, that is, I am squarely in the middle of that right now. Um, but one thing that I've learned over many, many times of uh, taking on a transformation role is the time I spend developing the culture and the team in the beginning is the greatest investment and payoff that you can have. So, uh, you know, even in some of our recent conversations, uh, that is where I am choosing to focus and, uh, and really uncover um, one, those hidden gems, find areas where maybe we have some gaps and some disconnects, or uh, it's, it's really like this, uh, puzzle piece mission and, you know, uh, really forensic kind of strategy when you come into a new org. So uh, here I am. Well, you, you shared something with me and I loved it. It was, you created a template and you, this was a way to get to know your team. And mm -hmm. I loved your approach because there's a lot of ways to do this. And as you said, you know, figuring out who your rock stars are and how your team is stacked and who's got the chops to rise up and who's ready to take on that next challenge and who just needs to go. <laughs> and can you share what you did? Because I thought this was really smart. Yes, I, I call it the rapid fire template. 
And, you know, when you're coming in as a new leader, you're trying to absorb so much information about the portfolio, the, the leadership, the priorities, the team. And I find that uh, in the first 90 days, I make an effort to meet one-on-one -on -one with every person in my organization in some way. And, and I think depending on the size of your team, that can be very challenging. Um, but I really try to do that. And it's for a number of reasons. One is you're hearing the day-to-day. -day. You, you are listening from the people who are on the front line, what their challenges are, what type of environment they're working in. So this template has been something that I've, I've used consistently. And uh, you know, there's six major parts to the template. And uh, the first is around, what are you working on? Tell me all the things that you're working on. Um, what are you going, what's going well? Uh, I want to see some successes. Where do you feel like we're making progress? Uh, what are your blockers? Let's let's talk openly about where I can help you um, or where things might be stalled. I ask everyone to comment on their dream for the the organization, and this is always a really interesting Very telling uh, piece of data yeah. to get back. Uh, and typically, it's the same. Very consistent that everyone has the same desires, um, you know, for the org, um, you know, the next one is around, um, you know, where are the areas of opportunity and things that if they were me, they would want to know. Mm -hmm. uh, and this could be personal, this could be based on their role, the business, uh, the type of work they're doing. And it, it kind of takes that veil down a bit um, because it allows them to share with me maybe some of the things that aren't obvious. Um, and the last one, which is not the least important, uh, but very important is what kind of, um, you know, space do I thrive in? And that's important for me to know. Are people looking for a leader who's more hands-off? Are people looking for someone to actually give them more direction? Uh, do they work well autonomously? Do they like working in a team? And, and it helps me figure out how they need to be led. And uh, it's, I know this is your jam, right? It's- um, uh, Yeah, you're speaking yeah. my language. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's very telling because then automatically I can adjust my style for those different conversations. And uh, so I've, I've just, uh, you know, sort of in the throes of going through all of those meetings and templates with my teams. And um, it's, uh, it's, it's from a psychological perspective, it's very, very interesting. And it tells you much more than you would um, meeting more in a group setting, so. No, for sure. Yeah. I, I, and it, what you just described is just a modified version of the question that I always tell leaders they need to ask is how can I be the best manager for you? Mm -hmm. And a lot of these people aren't gonna be your direct reports. So you did it in a way that is saying what's most conducive to your success. And right. that is such a fundamentally smart way to lead. So bravo for figuring that out. And um, I'm a big, big supporter. So speaking of leadership, what are some of the takeaways from the best leaders you've ever worked for or admired? Um, I know you've been exposed to a lot, just like me. And so I'm, I'm interested in some of your, uh, your nuggets on this one. Sure. Well, um, as I know, we've talked about many, many times, you learn just as much from the bad leaders yeah. as you do from the good. So um, I think for me, uh, it's, it's a, a 
a blend of the way that I like to be led and the way that I've seen leaders adjust to, to me, what it is that I need to be successful and sort of unlock the best environment and, and best way for me to add value. And personally speaking, I have had some incredible leadership over the years. Yeah. And those best leaders have a few similarities. I think the first is clarity on what needs to be done and um, really being able to articulate the vision of the organization, mm. because that allows me to figure out how to contribute. And if you don't have that, you could be the warmest leader uh, possible, yeah. but the employee could still feel very much, um, you know, like they don't have footing on, yeah. on how to contribute. So I think that's like the, the best one, the, the leaders where I said, I know how to follow you yeah. and I know how to contribute are the best. Well, and it's providing purpose, right? Mm -hmm. and, and I talk about that so much and it's your responsibility as a leader to give that clear vision, to say, this is what your contribution is going to do. And that way people feel more connected to the work they're doing. Yeah. So yeah, I love that. So let's flip it. What are some of the worst examples you've ever seen? You know, I think some of the worst are, I mean, of course, anytime there's um, inappropriate behavior, um, inability to um, remain calm un under pressure, I think anxiety in an organization is one of the most distracting things to a team being successful. And sometimes as leaders, we have to push down those anxieties, those concerns in order to keep the team on track and not spiral out of control. Um, and, and I think where I have felt the most unsupported in, in my positions have been where um, those leaders are not providing that calm mm -hmm. within the organization. Um, and clearly, you know, there's others, right? Outright disrespect, um, lack of inclusion. Um, you know, I, I think the leaders who do it best are really the ones who can um, harness like the power of what's great within each individual and point them in the right direction. So, um, yeah. Wow. Yeah. And we've experienced so much of those oh. <laughs> um, horrible styles. Yes. And, uh, you know, I always say, don't be the star of someone's bad memory. We have a few stars of bad memories okay. to, to recall. We use those as teaching points. Mm -hmm. So one of the topics you love to talk about is servant leadership. And mm. I would love for people to understand what you mean by that. Sure. This is a, you know, a term in the industry that I think gets tossed around, but I'll explain it the way that I like to live it. You know, there's, there's different types of leaders. And again, depending on the size of your organization, I think it's applicable, right? You could be leading thousands of people globally in different markets with different cultures. You could be leading a team of 10, right? And there's sort of a uh, an inverted pyramid, right? Uh, sometimes we see leaders who like to hold all of the uh, decision-making power at the top and all of the direction and strategy and, and everything, um, you know, managing up all, all at the top of the organization. I like to think about it as like an inverted pyramid where my role as the leader is to make sure that everything below me is 
getting the support that it needs to be successful. I am a servant in service of my team. And that means being able to break down blockers for them. That means helping to provide clarity. That means working on the big picture things in the background that are going to make it easier for them to get their work done. Um, and I think that's very different than a leader who is command and control and, uh, because it's short-sighted, right? You're not able to pull from all of those amazing experiences and skills within your organization. If you have a leader who thinks that everything begins and ends with them. So I'm a big fan of, uh, of that strategy. And, and how do people respond when you generally lead that way? Because I, I use this as illustration for the way to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, and Lord knows we've been under the thumb of people who misinterpret leadership for power. And mm-hmm. because I said so, which was mm-hmm. never a satisfying answer as a child to get. So yeah. It's certainly not going to be satisfying in, in the real world. Um, so talk a little bit about that. I think I see people, two different types of people receiving this. I think some embrace it right away. Like, oh my gosh, thank you so much for for being here and listening and being in the trench with me to figure this out. It's not micromanagement. So I think you have to be really careful to not confuse how your time then gets spent. You're there to understand, gather the information that you need, take action not to be mired down in like the details of the day. So you have to be very clear about what it means to have that servant leadership style. So I think some people are automatically embracing it. I've seen many others who don't understand it and they, they perceive it to be inspection or involvement, or um, there's a certain sense of um, intrusion I think because they're not used to having someone being present with them. So I I do have this like learning curve with some people on on teams where um, they they think that I am um, coming into their territory when what I'm trying to do is coach them, right? For them to be able to see more directly what is in my mind and how I can get them to um, adjust and for us to get aligned. And so, you know, it's interesting. This is a whole other canon topic that we could spend hours and hours on, but, um, providing feedback and coaching sometimes gets very confused with criticism. And I think servant leadership is one of those things that can help you to frame better. I'm not here to tell you you're doing it wrong. I am here to show you that there's a better way. Mm -hmm. And I think it takes some people some time to understand that your approach has nothing to do about uh, evaluating what they're doing in a negative light. It's all about helping them rise up in a different way. And uh, sometimes that takes a little bit longer and uh, I have some of those. So it's, you, know, uh, you, mm-hmm. you hit on something and I just saw it in a post today that not everyone has had the good fortune of working for a great leader mm-hmm. and you can't be what you can't see. Mm-hmm. So My advice to people when you have a new leader is give them a chance and give them a moment to 
demonstrate their style to you because when people can be open, it's really hard to trust if you've had nothing but criticism and micromanagement and uh, a toxic environment. It's super hard to just be like, oh, we got a new leader. I'm ready. People aren't built that way. Mm -hmm. They're scarred. They're jaded. They're hurt. And so when someone new comes in, it's like, hmm, I'll see what she's about. Yeah. So, you know, those you got to mm-hmm. kind of let your guard down and, and be open to mm-hmm. what is this person about? And um, you, you did that so well with your template and saying like this, I want to understand you. I want to know who you are. Mm-hmm. And that understand that helps you build your team and stack your team appropriately. So I just, I love that. That's good. So let's shift a little. I want to talk about culture because, you know, I think culture can often be defined by the top, but it's also defined by leaders in general and the people that are in the organization. So share some of your observations on culture and is it it important to you? Oh, hugely important. And, and, you know, uh, it's one of the hardest things to define. It's, it's, um, it's much more feeling than the, um, I don't know, the tactical, I think, you know, when you're in a bad culture, uh, and you know, when you're in a good one, and there's so many things that, that make up, um, you know, sort of the components of what makes it great and good. And for me, culture is when I wake up in the morning and I open my laptop, do I feel like I'm going to a safe place mm-hmm. where I can bring my whole self, where I feel supported and motivated and, um, and also very clear about how my contributions are part of something greater. And, and for me, that could be in the way that I work with my teammates. It could be Um, you know, my relationship with my direct line manager, it could be um, when I present a new idea, how is that accepted or rejected? There's so many elements to what make a culture. Um, And, and, and I'm always keenly observant, especially when I take a new role to understand um, its words. It's so much. um, And I had said this to all of my teams. And if any of my teams see this, they'll they'll probably comment it. But words matter so much that um, sometimes we're unaware how a choice of a particular word in a particular setting where there's a tone um, in place can really shift a culture in a very positive way or in a very negative way. So Um, I like to document things, Um, having a social contract with my team where we all agree, this is how we're going to work together is critically important. Um, And giving permission, yeah, giving permission to call each other out when we feel like we're in violation of that contract and having the accountability. And calling people out, like this is a a topic that um, I talk about a lot, you know, there's a difference between radical candor is not brutal honesty. Mm-hmm. Radical <laughs> candor is the ability to provide criticism and feedback with a tone of kindness and praise. And there is a better way, as you said, mm-hmm. as you said before. Mm-hmm. And as long as everyone understands that is the veil that we are seeing this entire effort together with, then it's a safe space. And yeah. 
people will accept that because it makes them better. Um, but that doesn't come from a leader who's just clobbering you over the head with, you really sucked on that last call. You didn't represent yourself well. You didn't represent the company well. Well, how do you think they're going to do on the next one? Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're not going to do well. They're going to be yeah. anxious as hell. Oh, yeah. yeah. Delivery delivery is the one of the most critical points in leadership, right? You could, you could phrase something five, six, seven different ways and probably only one of them is actually going to get through to the person who needs to receive that message. And it's different every time, right? What may work with one employee does not work with the other, which is why I like to start to understand each of these team members and say, okay, this person is resistant, right? They think I'm placing blame. When what I'm trying to do is help them see that the context in, in which they're working is actually damaging to them because they're, they're not seeing the bigger picture. Right. And, um, and you have to be very careful to understand each person and like how they're going to receive it. So it's a positive conversation, right? Yeah. Not a negative one. And, um, and again, that, t- that comes with time, but well, it, yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. And I just applaud you for building this for your team there and for such a great ride. So I want to pivot a little bit to the marketing side of the world. So let's talk a little bit about personal branding, because this is a topic that, um, at least in my world, became very important to me as I kind of left corporate America and went off on my own. But from a corporate perspective, why does personal branding even matter? It does. And you know, it's funny. It, there was this, this time, I think it was like in like 2000 and like 15 where personal branding became like this industry, you know, buzzword. Um, but the truth is it's, it's still so valuable because there's, there's many elements, right? It's the way that you present yourself when you're speaking to another human, right? Like this, right. Um, and, and that's for the masses there's a way that you're representing yourself when there's only one other person in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, the way that you are um, building content and your own point of view, yep. um, whether that's through social media posts, whether that's through um, the way that you participate in certain organizations and okay. agencies or you know communities around the world. So all of these things, like your, your energy, the way you dress, the way you present yourself with your words and your personal interests with other people, so many things make this up. And so true. I think it's, it's half intention, but it's also awareness of as you become more confident in who you are as a person, um, you don't have to try as much. Mm-hmm. Um, to have a quote personal brand, you just become a more authentic version of yourself. And um, I think early in my career, I struggled with that. I mm-hmm. thought, oh, am I this, you know, powerful woman in, in tech? Yeah, but also now, you know, I'm a creative. I I love painting and pottery. I'm a godmother. I have joined the yacht club. I'm a CMO. It's a part of who I am. Um, but I think as we look at the full brand of you know what we consider in that package, um, the more mature I get in my career, 
the more those personal elements also come into play. I agree. And I actually heard a, a quote yesterday that said, your personal brand is what people say when you're not in the room. Mm. And I was like, Ooh, that's a, that's good. I like that because, yeah. you know, you hope that you're associated with the vision you're painting for everybody and what you're putting out there. And mm. I think the one message I, I've said over and over again is you are not your job. You are so much more than that. And yeah. that's to your point you're a multifaceted person. Mm -hmm. So you lived in Japan for three years and you've traveled extensively. I'd love you to share some of your observations of, you know, how work culture mm -hmm. is different or the same and, and, you know, just your takeaways from, mm -hmm. from living abroad. I look back on that experience and I have so much appreciation for those three years you know, the first year I was there, it was supposed to be a one-year contract, which turned into three. And the first year I was there, I, I was more focused on getting done what needed to get done. Mm -hmm. and, and then when I took on a larger role and they asked me to stay longer, I realized that sustainability is a really important thing when you're working with another culture. And what I mean by that is doing things that have stickiness for the long run that are not going to evaporate when you go home. Mm -hmm. And, and it takes a while to truly understand how to take maybe what your mission and action are and adapt that. So it can have staying power. Yeah. And the last two years of my assignment there or are really when I started to internalize the culture and understand, you know what, a, I'd love to do this, but it doesn't work for the market. We had to make some of those decisions. Um, or two, A, B, one, two, <laughs> I forget what I'm on. Um, like yeah, yeah. Um, that, that we need to take it and we need to maybe turn it on a different axis to make sure it'll be successful in the local market. And I, I learned so much about the asking questions is your greatest gift yeah. when you are dealing with a culture that you don't know and having that modesty to really go in saying, I don't know. And even if you think, you know, you really, really don't. And, and you have to ask question after question, after question, after question. Um, like we used to say, it's the five whys, right? Why, 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 why? And, um, and, you know, and I think it helped me get to a place where you earn trust in, in that um, community. You start to understand the nuances of doing business or the go-to-market, or you start to have the space in your brain for thinking about how to approach a problem in a very different way. And that has made me a much better leader. Um, you know, there's times where I deal with other cultures. Um, you know, I do a lot of business in Europe with Germany, uh, very similar to Japan in terms of wanting to put out a refined and perfected product solution into market, yeah. right? And um, I, it helps me to do business in, in these different environments. Absolutely. So, ooh, that, one of the best PhDs you could ever get is going and living and immersing yourself in the local you know, culture. Yeah, that's true. And, you know, my observation of your time there is, um, and this is going to be, I'm going to bring you back, but the relationships mm. that you created 
while you were there have continued and mm-hmm. stayed with you. And, you know, I'm one of these lucky people that have got to keep you in my life for 20 years, but let's talk a little bit about relationships and friendship at work, because mm-hmm. I think for the people that have never had those good experiences, this is a foreign concept. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's, it's just something that's driven me. And I, I think you as well. So share, oh, yeah. share your thoughts on that. You know, there's this interesting saying, I spent some time living in Italy as well that, um, and same applies for Japan, that you only know that the relationship is true is if they invite you to dinner at their home. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's kind of like where I put the bar on things, you know, is this person going to invite me into their home? And um, Japan specifically, um, I, I cried the whole way home and it was not because of the job. It was because of the people. Yeah. And, you know, especially having been an expat, um, as a single woman, a young single woman living overseas, um, they became my family. I mean, they embraced me, um, to a point where there was no light between how I felt about them as, um, people in my, in my world, you know, as opposed to being employees. And, um, I spent a lot of time really with them personally, professionally. Um, I've done that with all of my teams and I always say, um, the hardest thing to do when leaving a role is leaving my teams. Uh, It's, it's devastating for me. Um, really, I get very, very attached and, because I find that when you develop that care and that relationship that um, it, it makes you go into the fire and so many of together and so many of these yes. other situations. So uh, yeah, it's all about the people. So it's a perfect segue into work-life balance because mm-hmm. in that situation, the lines were super blurred mm-hmm. and those people probably Mm-hmm. my guess is would have done anything for you that you mm-hmm. asked because they were loyal to you. You built that rapport and mm-hmm. they enjoyed you so much. Mm-hmm. So how do you balance work and life here? Because this is not Japan and you know, the expectations are much higher and yeah. we can get into the hobbies question in a second, but you know, how do you handle that? Oh, I can tell you most of my career, I handled it very poorly. (laughs) And um, honestly speaking, it's hard, right? Because one, I love what I do. Mm -hmm. And I love what I do so much that um, it is part of of who I am. And in many times, I have a hard time separating the, the joy and the returns from that work. And because it's part of your identity. And, but what I'll, what I'll tell you is the last year or two, I think I've gotten pretty good at this. And there's this mindset shift about if I am not a whole person before I send that email, my first email of the day, it, it, it doesn't matter much because if I am not rested and healthy and clear headed and happy, Um, I'm not showing up as my best self and, um, making the space for it is, is so much work. It it takes effort and planning and intention. 
And, uh, and I, I pretty much sucked at that, you know, um, the first, I would say 15, 16 years of my career where I gave my whole self away, um, to the job. I think there is such an eagerness when you're younger to prove yourself. And Mm -hmm. if I don't answer that right away, I'm going to appear Mm -hmm. like a slacker, or Mm -hmm. if I don't respond, you know, within 10 minutes of them sending this, you know, Mm -hmm. they're going to judge me. And that's really not the case. Nobody's expecting a response that quickly, unless they say, I need a response from you Mm -hmm. immediately. Mm -hmm. Um, So, uh, you know, giving yourself that permission to breathe and take that walk and collect your thoughts before you respond is helpful and helpful for you and helpful for the people that are going to get the response because it's going to be a lot more articulate. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I don't claim to be any, uh, any better than you in, in the early parts of my career. I've definitely gotten better with boundaries now. Um, the, other, the other thing I'll just say is it's not a straight line work-life yeah. balance. It's this, right? Yes. And and when you're in different seasons of life, you may flex more to your family. You may flex more to your right. friendships or personal privacy and space and creativity. Like I think we put a lot of pressure on ourselves to have this perfect mix of balance in the day. I'm sorry, that is not life. So giving ourselves some grace to say, okay, today's going to look a lot different than tomorrow is totally fine. That's such a good point. And thanks for saying that. Um, All right. So tell us, I know you have a bunch of hobbies and they're very cool. Tell a little bit about what you're doing. You know, I'll say Um, I have always been very much a creative right brain, like very heavily right brain, although I do love process and structure. Um, (laughs) But, you know, I come from a background of being in the arts and music and um, I lost my way a little bit, you know, for a while there where I forgot how much joy those things bring Mm. me. And um, I'm in a place now living where the arts are a huge part of the community. And I have um, really leaned into that heart. So I have been taking um, acrylics, you know, painting classes, and uh, I have been doing pottery, which is very interesting with these nails. Um, so um, some of my work is back there, actually, and uh, glass blowing. Uh, so I spend a lot of time. My, it allows my brain to like recharge yeah. and and get away from some of the things that might be worrying me. So. Um, yeah, I, I like, be, I, I'm a, I'm a creative and like a builder, you know, I think I get a lot of satisfaction out of that. So, well, and I've seen the work, it's beautiful stuff and, and I've seen it when it's not nice. So the progression has been really fun to watch. Yeah. So it's, it's awesome. I hope you keep doing it. <laughs> um, so who are some of your biggest inspirations? Oh boy. <clears throat> um, this is cheesy, but it's true. And you know, it's true. Um, but I, you know, my dad has just always been my number one mentor. I feel like, you knew I was going to say that. Um, and <clears throat> he's sort of this like guiding light for me on first person I call when I want to talk something out. Um, first person I call when something great happens. Um, and he just gives such balanced advice and sees things more clearly than sometimes I may when it's like an emotional thing. Um, I respect his career. I respect the legacy that he's left in his career. I I still meet people that say, oh, you're Steve's daughter and uh, I worked for him or I worked with him. And uh, so he's kind of been like this model for me on, 
certainly the way that I approached my my career and also the leadership roles because I had a, I was young and and I needed someone to model that behavior after and uh yeah I'm as big he, as he's can. been a pretty great north star and he gives very good advice um so he he's he was a wonderful leader and I actually got to work for him so I yeah. I really always admired him um okay so here's a big one mm. what do you want your legacy to be Oh, oh man, you give me all like the good juicy ones at the end. Um, you know, <clears throat> it's funny. My mom has always had this saying about being not the smartest or the loudest, but the kindest person in the room. And I, I don't know, it's always resonated so much with me um, that if people look back and think, gosh, she was fair and kind. And, um, that, I think that, I think that would be want, I would want that to be my legacy. I think, well, uh, mission accomplished. You're already there. So <laughs> good job. This has been so much fun. How do people find you? Uh, well, they can find me on LinkedIn. I think that's probably the easiest place. Um, I'm, uh, I'm there and, uh, I'd love to, uh, connect with everyone. Awesome. Thank you so much for being on the podcast. You're a tremendous guest. And guys, I hope you tune in for another episode of Heartbeat for Hire. Thanks for listening. Thanks, Lens. Thanks for listening to Heartbeat for Hire. If you like what you hear, I'd love it if you'd subscribe and leave a five-star review. To keep the conversation going, you can find me on Insta or at LinkedIn at Lindsay Dowd, H4H, or you can reach me at my website, heartbeatforhire.com. Thanks so much. Have a great day.